right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. It is Victory Sunday yet again. Full disclosure, got to be honest, we did not have a Fortinet uh, recap scheduled for this week for a variety of reasons. One of them, uh, of course, being we are rolling straight into the Ryder Cup. We are pre-recorded with Bones and Jamie Kennedy, which you're going to hear from shortly. Did not budget Max winning the Fortinet. That was about the only thing that could have happened this past week for us to have uh, really been caught with our pants down. But here we are. More on that in just one second. There was also a return to uh, Portland for the LPGA this past week. A rain-shortened event, uh, unfortunately, a 54-hole event. But a notable Callaway performance early in the event came from 57-year-old Dame Laura Davies. Listen, we requested this copy uh, because we wanted to bring up that Big Randy and I actually got to play pool with Dame Laura Davies after the uh, Europe won the Solheim Cup. Listen, I'm not going to say who won, uh, but there might be a reason uh, we bring it up. It may be the, the proudest accomplishment of Big Randy's career was sinking the final winning shot uh, against the 57-year-old Dame who made the cut this week. Uh, we just wanted to give her a shout-out. Very hilly, difficult layout. She's got an epic Max LS driver, epic speed fairway wood, uh, the same Odyssey White Hot OG Rossi putter that Rom and Annika won majors with this year, and a Chrome Soft X golf ball. So going forward, keep an eye out on Dame Laura Davies. She's going to be doing commentary uh, this coming week for Sky, for the Ryder Cup. Hoping to catch up with her up there. Uh, along with other Callaway LPGA staffers, including young hitter Madeline Sagstrom, Carlota Saganda, Georgia Hall, Jungun Lee Six, among many others. As we always say, looking at the LPGA game, the clubs they use, it's probably a better model for most male players than looking at the men's professional game. So just something to think about. I'm going to turn it over shortly here to our conversation with Bones. We're going to get Max on here in the coming weeks to to chat about his third PGA Tour win. Before we get into that, we're going to play some audio from Max's uh, second podcast visit he did with us back in 2018 when he had just wrapped up his tour card. I go back and listen to this. I, I've mentioned this before. Probably each time he's won, I go back and listen to this clip just to remind myself. Anytime I'm playing bad, uh, to really understand what perseverance you know, through adversity looks like at the highest level. A guy that had lost his game to an, an extent that you probably don't have full appreciation for. Played an entire season on the PGA Tour and earned three FedEx Cup points. And was supposed to be this like the dude that he is now was who he was supposed to be. And trying to get his way through early career struggles uh, is, was definitely not easy. I think he made either four or five consecutive birdies to finish out one of his rounds in the Web Tour Finals back in the day to get his tour card even. Comes back, wins Wells Fargo, wins at Riv this past year, and now wins his third event, the Fortinet. Firm and fast golf course in California. Proper ball striking, rewarded accordingly. And he's your winner. Congratulations to Max. We are obviously super excited for him. And uh, I didn't expect to get caught up in PGA Tour golf this past weekend, heading into my favorite event of the year, which you can't, you couldn't probably tell I'm quite hyped for. Also, shout out to Mav McNeely. Uh, double bogey on 17 was not what we were looking for, but bounced back with an eagle on 18 to get a solo second. He talked a lot on the pod uh, back in March about how shots on the PGA Tour are not linear and how. He tries his, his best to get the most out of his good golf because you can get so much more exponential reward for that than you know just grinding out a shot to make a cut or whatnot. And he continues to get a lot out of his good weeks. And it looked I really thought he was going to win today, but a win is coming in, in the very near future for Mad McNeely. We were 
pulling for him, pulling for Max. Was, uh, no, no matter what, there would be no losers tonight. But before we get into Bones, again, here's the clip from 2018 from Max talking about his battle through adversity and whatnot. And uh, gosh, it's, it's the best. You can, I've listened to this 10 or 15 times, and I'll still, every time it comes up, we'll listen back to it. So enjoy. I don't like to get serious about a lot of things, but what I was, I, I was so proud of myself that year and obviously going into this year, but that year, because I would leave Thursday, I'd shoot a bazillion and go to the range. Friday, I'd shoot a bazillion, miss a cut, go to the range. And uh, I had actually changed back to my, um, my coach I had in college and you know, who I'm with right now, Les Johnson. And we, you know, he was awesome. I I'd call him every day and be like, Hey, like, this is what happened today. And we didn't have all bad days. I remember the John Deere and the Greenbrier actually led the field in, uh, in total driving for the first two days, not all four days. Cause I didn't get to play those two, but <laughs> the, all the first two days. And you know, that even was a mental struggle. Cause I'm like, gosh, if like the one thing I think I'm terrible at, I'm the best at this week. And I still miss the cut, but it was just becoming way too much, like too much pressure on myself to do everything. Great. Um, you know, also like completely just like giving up on practicing my wedges and my short game and putting, because it's like, if I can't get the ball and play, what's the point chipping for six, isn't really like that big of a deal. Um, so, uh, but I'd have weeks where it was just, you know, I would just be like, okay, I'm going to miss a cut, but I'm going to grind as hard as I can. And every single day, every single day, I'm going to learn one new thing about it and, and just be so freaking prepared for when it comes around. And I, I, I posted it on my Twitter after I think I got my card. Um, but I found this quote that Kobe, uh, had in his locker. I think he got from Popovich, but it was about this stone cutter. And it says, you know, like a stone cutter, uh, is chopping away at a, at a, at a big, um, boulder and he swings at it, you know, one time, two times, three times, a hundred times without like a dent being made in it. And on the hundred and first time it completely breaks apart. And it says a wise man knows it was not the hundred and first blow that did it. It was the hundred that came before it. And I was like, this is me right now. Like, this is how I'm going to like leave my mark on this game. And this is how I'm getting back. And I got, I got, I, I was fortunate to have a career in general, like that I've made a good amount of money where it wasn't like a massive financial, like it wasn't on my brain, like that. I was just like siphoning off money. Um, but you know, it obviously wasn't great, but I was able to be like, okay, like if this takes four years, it takes four years, but we're starting right now and I'm not going to waste a day or an hour or a minute not trying to get better. And it actually taught me to get my attitude to be so much more positive. Cause I realized that if you're playing that bad and you're also thinking negatively, like they don't go together. So I had to lie to myself and just be like, today's the day, dude, like today's the day we go shoot 65 and everything kind of breaks apart. And like this starts to go the right direction. And every time I thought I hit rock bottom, um, I founded a shovel and dug a little deeper and it was shocking. I would come off golf courses and just like in shambles, like mentally and just be like, man, like maybe I'm not supposed to do this. And then, you know, I'd be like, all right, wake up in the morning, going to practice. And I, I'm very, very proud of myself for doing that. Um, it was hard and it makes this year feel like I haven't felt what I felt, uh, when I got my car back in, in, in uh, Canterbury in Cleveland a couple weeks ago, cause I have a unbelievable group of friends that supported me and never, you know, like, you know, you lose, you, you lose a lot of people when you do this. Like I, I got a lot less text messages you know, obviously when you're playing bad about hanging out, but my friends stuck by me and it was cool to get texts from certain people and then be like, man, like I know what you just did. And like, that was impressive. And I was like, for the first time I was like, I agree. Like this one was cool. Um, cause embarrassed. It's one thing to be bad at your job or, or to struggle. It's really hard to 
like legitimately be embarrassed to be out there. I'm playing against Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and Rory McIlroy, and I'm like shooting 80, and I'm losing. I thought I think one term I lost in two rounds, 14 shots to the field in total driving. And it's just like, what are you doing out here, dude? Like, and, and I know deep down I'm better than this, but you just think you get stuck in this rut and, you know, glad it obviously turned. Um, I just wanted to leave a mark of, um, resiliency, uh, you know, and I thought that that would be, that would be who I am. Some people are great at hitting a seven iron. Some people are great at putting. I'm going to be like the toughest guy you've ever met. And like, that's in my head, how I kind of tried to spin it. We're going to turn over to the conversation with Bones and then on the back half with uh, from the European side, Jamie Kennedy from Golf TV. But up first, here's Bones. All right, Bones, I'm going to start you with this one. What happened in France? You came on, you helped us preview before 2018. You explained a lot of what, you know, may happen. I didn't listen very closely, but in your, you know, in total hindsight, what happened in France? Well, I will say that when I got there and I walked out and looked at the golf course for the first time, I was probably as taken aback as I've ever been in my PGA Tour life in terms of the setup. I could not believe how narrow the fairways were and how difficult or unplayable in a sense the rough was. Now, certainly the Europeans, because they were hosting that event, they have to say so in terms of the setup. And those guys, their players obviously knew this was coming. And I'm sure to a large degree with the, the work and the data that Bjorn had, had looked into, they realized that narrow fairways and, and hellacious rough was going to be good for their cause. That was an absolute grand slam home run because I remember thinking almost right away, uh-oh, we could be in a little bit of trouble here. And, and it worked out perfectly. And of course, our guys got completely out of played in addition to all of that. But there's just so many little backstories and, and, and little things, if you will, that influence these Ryder Cups and course setup uh, and familiarity is certainly one of them for sure. Well, and that was a little question I had ready for you was, you know, how much can a course you know, set up play a, f- a role in the final result? But what explain? I, I think I understand it, but I don't think I'm very good at explaining why. That kind of setup, why does that favor the Europeans? Like, why, why were they able to play it that so well, and why did the Americans have so much trouble with it? Well, certainly, as I said, because I think the Europeans know it's coming. Uh, they, sure. they certainly weren't surprised when they got out of the car. But, but I also think that, you know, when you combine the fact that they, you know, the Europeans are very smart. They only have Ryder Cups on golf courses that host their European Tour events, and we basically almost never do. So, you know, when Rory McIlroy gets to Whistling Straits next week, he will have seen that golf course as much over the years as Dustin Johnson. So I just think that knowing that it's coming, and of course, I'm sure that the, the, the data, if you will, show that they were a straighter team off the tee, you know, their equipment setups, what have you, it, it's just, it just plays into how you feel about yourself and ultimately, to some degree, the results. And, and you know, we, when, when the U.S. won last in 2016, in Minneapolis there at Hazeltine, there were some very upset guys on the other side, on the European side, about the setup. They were calling, you know, some of the whole locations pro-am pins and there wasn't enough rough and this and that. And again, that was, uh, you know, our team or Davis Love in that particular sense, who was in charge of the setup saying, this is what's best for those guys. And on both occasions in those two Ryder Cups, it worked out perfectly. So if I'm, you know, I was riding super high going into 2018, I kind of downplayed the importance of course fit. I can't quite figure out where I net out in terms of my excitement for the U.S. side coming into 2021 because one part of me is saying, look, they've ran this playbook at Hazeltine. It, they won by five. It was you know, not really that close. They're going to run back this same playbook with maybe an even stronger team. 
gosh, it should really make sense for him, but I also can't really shake how you know how much I underestimated you know the the course influence and the setup and everything that happened uh, and how the Europeans played in 2018. So either talk me talk me up or talk me off a ledge in terms of you know what to expect from the American side and out of Whistling Straits. I've never gone into a Ryder Cup as a golf fan being concerned about so many things relative to the American side. Are they a significant favorite? Sure. But then again, I'm not sure you want to be the favorite in any Ryder Cup. It, it just doesn't do you any good. There's just so much going on. I'd love to know more about Colin Morikawa. How is he feeling? How has his swing been affected by these back issues that he's apparently had? You know, even today, there was new things coming out about Brooks Kepka, not so much about his health, but about his attitude towards the Ryder Cup. You know, how is Brooks feeling? It's just crazy what's going on. And, you know, the one thing that will help the Americans that's happened here of late is it looks like the weather is going to be relatively good. It looks like it could be around 70, 65 or 70. That's a really good thing for the Americans, I feel. A couple of years ago on the tournament dates, I think it was in the 40s and very windy. If we were going to have weather along those lines, I'd be very concerned about how that might affect the Americans' chances. So, Again, I, I, I love what the Americans have going on. I thought the picks were fantastic. Um, but, you know, Steve Stricker probably knows way better than I do what's going on with Brooks and Colin. And, and those are two very important guys in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, gosh, you didn't even get to Bryson, whose hands are wrecked from him training for long drive competitions uh, after the Ryder Cup. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you just can't make it up, can you? I, I, I know those were obviously his words and. And, and sure, I get he's on some driving range somewhere just hammering drivers. And I guess that's what he wants to do. And he's going to go straight from the Ryder Cup to participate in this national long drive thing. It's just, uh, you know, all I can say is there's, there's a large percentage of guys, you know, it was 100% back in my day that absolutely lived and worshipped, you know, the chance to play in a Ryder Cup. I'm not sure if it's 100% anymore, but I know that there are guys out there. I would guess one of them being a guy like Billy Horschel that would dearly love to be there next week, representing their country and their tour and his peers playing for the good old red, white, and blue. So, you know, it's a different time. I have some question marks as to what's going on and what's being done and what's being said in terms of the DeChambeau thing you mentioned and some other things. And uh, I'm a little puzzled myself. Well, what do you make of Kepka's comments? You know, they, they were circulating pretty heavily this past week uh, on social media, and social media is a pretty tough place to digest all those things. And, you know, quotes like that written down can maybe sound a lot worse than uh, they may have sounded coming out of his mouth. But it, it seemed to me to be very symbolic of the overall U.S. attitude that I think a lot of people, how a lot of people perceive the U.S. attitude to be over the last 20-plus years of like, Hey, what's my role? Like, I did my part. I played my golf in this, and I I, I want to get into a little deeper conversation as to how that relates to maybe how the Europeans approach this at all as well. But uh, long-winded way of me asking, what what were your overall takeaways when you when you saw those comments? To me, it's hard to second guess the success that Brooks has had because quite obviously, he's old school in the sense that he cares only about his performance in majors. You know, he said that for the record. His performance at regular tour events kind of speaks for it. And the guy went out and won three or four, you know, almost right away, if you will. When he said on Saturday night of the U.S. Open there at Shinnecock, nobody is more confident on the golf course than me. And then went out the next day, performed, got it done, made late birdies and won the U.S. Open. I thought to myself, wow, 
hats off. That is an incredibly studly thing to do in terms of the way he went about, you know, talking the talk and walking the walk. Um, now, now, how that relates to the Ryder Cup, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, this thing that you've had with some other guys, not Brooks, where, you know, after a losing Ryder Cup, they're trying to say, hey, you know, I played best ball with so-and-so yesterday and I made five birdies and he made two. So, you know, I just didn't get much help and I played way better. I mean, that's that's a killer for team morale and and for what goes on out there and for that ever important important climate in the team room. So I just think that, you know, and I'm not necessarily talking about Brooks specifically, but, you know, if there are guys, you know, that aren't in a sense living and dying with this result next week, then they, I think, have to ask themselves some pretty serious questions about doing it again in the future or, or what's important to them in terms of the Ryder Cup and representing their country. So again, it's, it, it's puzzling to me. I've certainly been on a part of, of these, you know, from a caddy standpoint, some of these teams and you see guys in the locker room on Sundays of a loss and they're in tears and they're despondent. And, and, and I get it because, you know, it means so much to so many people, but I, I guess these are different times now. And, and maybe some guys aren't as fired up to necessarily play in the Olympics or to play in the Ryder cup. And I guess that's something to, that we're going to have to adjust ourselves to. Well, I want to throw something at you here. And, you know, part of what I love about getting to interview guys like you is, you know, we throw a lot of dumb stuff around on this podcast, but I get to test out some of my thoughts and theories on things. And you could tell me if I'm off or, 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 you know, kind of on the mark with this, but went to the Solheim Cup this year. And of course, that's a different event than the Ryder Cup. But for the first time, I felt like I really got to see up close and personal and even like feel at times the difference in camaraderie between the two teams and how that affected play. And I think it's an important you know, the translation of this as well as the, the morale of things and how that affects the way you play, you know, when you come under pressure. And for the, the Europeans, for lack of a better phrase, they weren't afraid to, you know, look and act silly, you know, running on the greens, dumping water on each other after, after the win, cheering on teammates, jumping up and down on the green after the win. And I saw some images today of John Rahm doing the same thing in a celebration after France, which is, you know, he's obviously one of their top stars. And I couldn't help but think back to the lack of the celebration on the U.S. side. Even after winning in 2016, and you know, Rory had to go up to guys and say, like, come on, I know you, did you guys forget how to celebrate. And it just like washed over me this feeling of like the, the U.S.'s inability to sell themselves out to this team concept, even in victory. And it just like it really started to crystallize, you know, seeing, you know, kind of as I processed all this. What, what's your reaction to all of that? Well, to your point, you cannot overstate the importance of the team room and the camaraderie, as you say, and just the climate of things. You know, I'm frustrated that we, in terms of the U.S., haven't done uh, more in terms of performance at the Ryder Cups and, and, and how they've done over the years. And I say we, I'm a guy sitting in my, in my house right now, and I'll, of course, be completely impartial uh, next <laughs> week when I'm there covering it for NBC. But you know, I, I'm talking about myself as a caddy and the 11 or 12 that I went to in that particular role. You know, people say to me all the time, you know, oh, my gosh, that's a bunch of BS. It's just whoever plays best. Just get out there and ignore all, all the uh, all, all the stuff and, and, and just play. And it's just not that simple. And, and that, and again, is where the task force came from. People can make as much fun of the task force as they want. But the reality was that. It was so glaringly obvious that we were getting out thought and outdone with some of these decisions. And, and it's uh, some of these decisions basically relate to what you're talking about, the camaraderie, the pairings, the this, the that. 
And so it's hugely, hugely important. I think that what you're talking about and what I'm trying to talk about played into, you know, the fact that Patrick Reed didn't get picked just based on, you know, what went on in France and, and, and how, you know, disrespectful it seemed that he was in terms of talking publicly about his playing with Tiger in, in a couple of the sessions. So it's absolutely massive. You know, that's why, of course, this Bryson and, and Brooks thing, I'm sure, was addressed weeks ago. And again, if you've got guys upset at each other or guys that don't eat breakfast together or going out of their way not to sit next to each other at the gala, whatever the case may be, you've got a problem. And, and I think this task force has addressed that to a large degree. The way they select the captains and ultimately the vice captains is way, way better than it was 20 years ago. And all this is, is in an attempt to address what you're talking about and how things have to be really copacetic if you want to have a successful week. And I, I say that in the same, you know, in the same breath, there's six rookies on this U.S. team. And two of the guys that are not rookies are Spieth and JT. And I feel like they are two of the ones you know, that have been the best. I'm calling it selling out to the team in the best way possible, right? Of just giving yourself to it. I'll do whatever I can. If I go 0-5 and we win, I will be there, you know, taking champagne out of Phil's Phil's hand, you know, like Speed was up there at the top at 2016. And uh, it just, it, you know, Brooks was that guy, a new guy on this team as of, you know, two Ryder Cups ago. And it just seems like now he's kind of one of the veterans with him and DJ and I just don't get that vibe from them, and and that's that's and you, know, you mentioned some of the things that were worried, you know, that U.S. fans could and should be worried about coming into this. That's really kind of where it stops with me, and it's it just kind of it it speaks so much. And I was reading some Rory comments today, dude, from 2018, just talking about how much they enjoyed each other and being around each other and playing as a team. And I still, as much as I know that process has improved on the U.S. side, I still worry about guys' just ability to you know, sell out to the team. And I mean, do you feel it? Am I, am I onto something when I say it can affect how you play under pressure when you feel like you're kind of trying to do it on your own instead of really having a full on team approach to it? That's the only way that I can explain why these, this American team that has, is had such good teams has lost so many times. Yeah. You know, you certainly want to be out there with someone that you absolutely know has your back. Uh, and again, I think that it's a pretty general way to say it. I just don't think you can bring an ego to the Ryder Cup. And, and that, that goes for the, you know, the captain of the team. And, and, and it absolutely goes to the players. And, you know, you, you know, if you and I had had several beers at this point, we could go back, you know, 20, 30 years and, and talk about maybe, you know, some guys that brought significant egos to that competition and things went horribly wrong. But we won't. But, you, you know, it, <laughs> no, it, we it, might do that. We just won't <laughs> record it. Okay. But, you know, and again, this is just just my opinion. But, you know, the one thing I will say, because his name's come up a couple of times, you know, you know, DJ's a different animal. I mean, he's just he's just DJ. I mean, you know, he's the most resilient guy in the game. You know, he, he the thing I love about the guy is you can go out there and cover him for television. He's made a double bogey 30 minutes ago and he'll run into him on the 12th hole. And he's like, hey, man, what's going on? He just couldn't be any nicer. Just the way he operates you know, is a little different than any golfer I've ever seen before. So I don't want to necessarily lump him in because, you know, he might be the most, you know, big time Ryder Cup fan in the world. And we just would never know. He might not, you know, talk, speak about it or show it until he gets back to, you know, living in South Florida. And he's talking about the, the week's events with his wife or whatever the case may be. So, you know, he, he's he's a little bit different I, uh, in terms of some of the stuff we're, we're speaking of. But, you know, Again, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but it's just incredibly important. Don't bring your ego. Have your partners back. 
certainly don't sell anybody out to the press after the fact. And, and, and I do think that, that, you know, you mentioned the picks and the young guys. I do think that there's a real thought, if you will, amongst some of these younger guys now that they want rookies to a large degree, way more than they used to, because they feel like some of these veteran players have way too much scar tissue from previous Ryder Cups. Yep. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's also, it's wild to me that over the last 20 years, U.S. captains picks have had better records than the actual qualifiers have had, which uh, they've played in fewer matches, but still it was a, a noticeable percentage in there. But obviously, listen, you know, listen to this show, you know that people know the actual rules difference between stroke and match play, but at the highest level, how how is it different? What makes a great match play player different from a stroke play player? It, you know, do stroke play players put too much pressure on themselves? I, I'm trying really hard to understand it. I don't think I can get all the way there where, you know, if I'm watching Dustin Johnson and Ian Poulter tee it up in the same tournament, the very few golf courses am I choosing Poulter over DJ on? But, like, if they're playing head-to-head match play, I feel totally different about it, and I just can't put my finger on why. For somebody that's seen it up close and personal, why would, why would you say that is? Uh, I would say it's the affinity for the big stage. I mean, certainly, you know, in the Ryder Cup, you're playing 80% of your matches if you play all five with a partner. And, and in my opinion, there have been some world-class players over the years that haven't necessarily got it done to the degree they should uh, in stroke play events, but play like absolute world beaters at the Ryder Cup because they've got a guy over there that has their back that can certainly back them up you know, in, in the best ball portion of things, but an alternate shot can kind of put their arm around them and say, that's okay, let's get him on the next hole. I, I think for some guys that that really, really plays into this. I think aggression is a big part of it. I, I think that, you know, some guys really, you know, we all hear these discussions on television about what you're aiming at and the this and the that. And, you know, let's take it at that, you know, NBC sign behind the, the green. You know, these guys, you know, have this opportunity at the Ryder Cup far more so to play right at the flag. And I think that suits some guys, again, better than others. I mean, I always thought that, you know, Tiger, even though his Ryder Cup record isn't what he would want it to be, you know, he was a much more aggressive player than uh, than people, you know, probably gave him credit for in terms of going out there, getting it done and, you know, getting his hands on the trophy. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's certainly different. But but I also think, you know, the one thing about about match play is it's 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 much more of a big stage mentality. And you get a guy like Poulter, obviously, and he he loves the attention. He knows he's on worldwide television, he knows if he knocks in this 15 footer, everybody's going to go berserk. And he's that much likely that much more likely to do it as a result. And some guys, you know, shrink a little bit at the thought of that stuff. Well, you've got a lot of experience when it comes to, you know, catting in four ball matches and in foursome matches. And I'm wondering if, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put you in almost the player's shoe, right? As if you were the one hitting the shots, but, you know, you're obviously on the same team as the player. What would you want in a, in a foursomes partner? Do you want a complementary style? Do you want a, you know, a, an alternate style? Do you really try to pair things up? Like I want this bomber with this wedge player. Do you differentiate that out between foursomes and four ball? I, I'm super curious, you know, all the different perspectives on that. Yeah, it's such a great question. And I, I do think that, that to a large degree, Ryder Cups are won and lost on the golf course by, you know, who makes the most 20 footers. Uh, it just seems to me that, you know, if you're making those putts, you know, of that kind of range, obviously they can flip matches, they can flip momentum, they can fire up the guys ahead or behind you. I would certainly want a guy that I felt like, you know, I can certainly run a, a birdie putt four or five feet past the hole and the guy's not going to freak out. But uh, beyond that is is that much you know more likely than other on the guys on the team to pour in a 20 footer 
but I, I do think that in you know 95% of the cases, it's it's very important that you're out there with someone you really enjoy uh, spending time with. You know, I think that you know it's it's I assume something of a foregone conclusion that we'll see Shoffley and Cantley together next week. They're extremely close friends. I think DJ and Berger, it's quite uh, likely we'll play together. Things along those lines. Someone that you can really relate to and talk to out there because I mean it's very very stressful for these guys, especially. For the U.S. guys, given the fact they lost the last one and and a lot of it is expected of them this coming Ryder Cup, because, it, of course, it's in the United States and it's in a sense time to kind of uh, flip the script in terms of how these Ryder Cups go. But, um, you know, it, again, it's so data driven now uh, and they've got to look at things like wind, uh, you know, at a golf course like this on Lake Michigan, where it can be, you know, a north wind one day and a south wind the next. It completely changes everything in terms of you know, things like carries over bunkers and who's going to play into the par threes and, you know, proximity of the hole over the course of the year relative to the PGA Tour. There's there's a million things that can go into it. But, you know, I, I just think more than anything else, it's, it, you've got to really, really enjoy who you're out there with. I mean, I saw it in 2012 with, with, with Phil and Keegan Bradley. Those guys were incredibly close. They, I'm sure they still are. And, you know, they they got out there, they won their first match, got some momentum, felt bulletproof, and they just basically, you know, ran the tables in terms of the matches they played together. And I thought a big part of that was just how much they genuinely enjoy being around each other. Well, I want to talk to you some about analytics, but I, I tried my hat in getting into the analytics game a little bit this week and just kind of dove into Whistling Straits. And I know you spent some time up there uh, in the past couple of months, uh, you know, checking out the golf course. But I'm going to test my theory on you when it comes down to foursomes. There's eight long holes at Whistling Straits. Five of those holes are even numbered holes. You let the longer hitter in foursomes tee off on those holes. You pair him with a good mid iron player. And the mid-iron player is going to get eight mid to long irons or maybe even fairway woods into the par fives uh, between those five long holes and three of the par threes. Uh, and then you share pretty much three or four short-ish approaches between the two of you in that. Does that sound like some kind of thinking that would go into to a foursomes pairing? I, and the example I use with that is if assuming Morikawa is healthy, pairing him with somebody like Finau uh, and letting Morikawa tee off on the odd holes and hit a lot of the mid-range approach shots seems like a great way to, to build a foursomes team. I, you, I see you, with your recent answer, you lean more on the relationship part, but on the analytics side, is that how you would see things playing out? 100%. I think that that's a terrific point by you, and I'm sure that's something that you know, Stricker is a very, very sharp guy, very, very shrewd, and he's not going to leave anything to chance. And, and, I, and I certainly, you know, the theory you just mentioned is something he's going to have thought long and hard about. And I think, yes, to your point, someone like Finau and Morikawa in, in, that, in, that, in that sense would be terrific. And, and, and I do think that will be a huge part of what goes on out there. Again, you know, the, the X factor is the wind. Of course, you've got these long-range forecasts now, and they'll have a pretty good idea days ahead what the wind's going to do. Uh, but, but yeah. And again, I, this is just such a great match play golf course there at whistling straights and, and so much can go on. And you've got these uh, very interesting tee shots. There's actually a par five on the front nine. I believe it's number six. And literally if you get the right wind coming off Lake Michigan, a guy like Dustin and Bryson can hit a drive so far and so right, if you will, in terms of line that you can hit sand wedge or wedge into this par five for your second shot. So there's, there's so much going on uh, in, in terms of, you know, the analytics and the data that you mentioned. But I, I think you hit that nail right on the head. Yeah, that's the, that's the fifth hole there. The sixth hole could also, with the right wind, be a drivable four. That's an interesting little 
little stretch of the golf course. And I want you, uh, that you gave an example there, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask in terms of what you've seen out of Whistling Straits and exactly why this golf course is, can and probably likely will strongly reward distance and maybe de-emphasize accuracy a little bit from all the you know the data charts that show the shot emphasis from the golf course it seems to be a a a dream for the united states one why why is that as a caddy can you give us an example of why you know distance might matter at one course more than it would another course yeah well it's it's a big golf course and and it's a great risk reward golf course i mean certainly there's a the short par four on the front nine the six hole that you mentioned that is drivable virtually everybody in the field can with the right wind, drive it down the left side and have the ball released down this hill just left of the green. And and some guys like maybe DJ Kepka and Bryson can actually play towards the green there. But again, I think, you know, it, it, it's it's a golf course where there's a lot of carries off the tee uh, that can, in a sense, reward aggressive play and length. Uh, several of them, the first hole, uh, the, the fourth hole, where you have these hourglass fairways. And if you just kind of bomb it, you can, you know, go from... Uh, you know, playing against the guy that's had to lay the ball up into the short part of the fairway and hit a six sign in there, and your partner's hitting pitching wedge. And it's it's very, very important. And, of course, let, let's not forget the fact that, you know, there's an intimidation factor to some degree in these Ryder Cups. And, you know, there's something very rewarding, if you sense, about, you know, getting up on, on, on some tee and watching your partner drive it 30 yards past the guy you're playing against. And, you know, it's going to give you that much more confidence in terms of what's going on out there. And, and uh, it, again, it's a match play thing. It wasn't that big a factor at Hazeltine in terms of length, but uh, I think it'll be a huge factor whistling straights again because of some of these forced carries. And I mean, I don't know if it was it was to the length that it was. You know, when you were up there, I don't remember when you were up there uh, filming those videos with Luke Donald, but uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot of rough. I, I I cannot picture any way that there would be uh, a lot of rough that's going to come into play on this golf course. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's a uh, very fair to say. I mean, again. You know, certainly given the, the killer rough, they played it in Paris and, and it, you know, didn't go well for, for the States there in, in, uh, in 2018. The one thing about Whistling Straits is that there's really not a whole lot of room for a whole lot of rough just because there's such an insane amount of sand there. Yeah. I mean, what, well, the first time I stepped on that property, I was completely freaked out because you just see, you know, I, there are hundreds and hundreds of bunkers there. And you, you come to realize over time that, you know, 95% of them, you know, don't come into play, but, uh, Again, you know, you get something going a little bit sideways there, but there's going to be some really interesting shots played out of some pretty crazy areas. Of course, as we saw with DJ when he unfortunately had that rules issue there a number of years ago, it's just there's it's just sand, 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 and uh, there, there's just not a whole lot I think they can do in terms of rough. But you know, to to your point, I don't think there'll be much of that anyway. Well, what are you, you know, either from what you would expect to happen or anything you're hearing on the pairings front uh, on, on either side, really? I, I haven't gotten dove in too deep on what we think Europe might do. You mentioned a couple things, you know, Cantlay and Shoffley. I think that's pretty apparent. I would imagine JT and Spieth are planning to go for a lot of matches. I don't know if anyone's going to play all four. That seems like a big property to go up and down and around for, you know, 36 straight holes. But uh, anything else you think the, the U.S. might do that uh, either you're hearing or have a gut feeling on? Well, well, one of the things I think that is huge for the U.S. in this Ryder Cup next week is the John Rahm situation for them. And I think what I mean by that is that I think that they're going to be very aware that if Rahm doesn't have a dominant week, you know, they've got a great chance to win. Rahm is such an incredibly talented, dangerous player to deal with uh, these days, obviously. 
you know, I think there will be a lot of speculation within the U.S. team as to where Rom is going to go in the order of things and who can they put up against him. Because, again, if Rom doesn't have a spectacular week, it significantly increases the chances that the U.S. will win, obviously. So I think that there'll be a lot of, of, of thinking and talking about that in terms of how they handle it and the order in which they put out guys and, in a sense, kind of guessing where Rom may go. Beyond that, you know, the, the Bryson things, you know, very, very interesting. I really don't have a good idea of who they might put him with. I, I think certainly Tony Finau, you know, is, is a possibility. But I think that might be kind of a something of a game time decision. Uh, I'm very interested to see if they're going to go, you know, something of a pod type situation next week in terms of, you know, having, you know, three groups of four and just having those guys play strictly with the guys in your own pod. And I, we'll, we'll be able to figure that quite quickly in terms of what we see and who plays with who, who in the practice rounds next week once we all get there on Tuesday and Wednesday. So it's just very, very interesting. You know, I, I can't wait to see how it all goes down. But uh, again, you know, between Stricker, you know, Fred, the, you know, the assistant captains, and of course, you know, Tiger, who I'm sure is, uh, you know, communicating with those guys on a regular basis. I just don't think that the U.S. is going to leave anything to chance here, uh, given how important this upcoming Ryder Cup is. What do you think about Phil's role as, a, as an assistant captain? I feel like he's been a, a playing assistant captain for, you know, maybe maybe his whole career, but uh, also it seems like a role he'd be, he'd be he's eager to get into. What, uh, what, what do you think he brings to the table in that role? I would just say a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. I, I know that he absolutely loves that week. Uh, I've heard him say many, many times that, that arguably it's his favorite week of the year. And this is a guy that obviously loves the Masters and, and many other things. So um, I, I just think that he'll that he, there's nothing he wouldn't do in terms of helping out the guys out there. And he'll be, you know, fist pumping and high fiving and, you know, dapping up everybody out there. And he'll be as excited as as anybody once Friday morning comes around in terms of, again, just supporting the guys and and just, you know, giving them as much uh help and encouragement as he possibly can. So I, I just think that's a, a role that he relishes. And of course, uh, it won't be too long down the road here before he's a captain himself. It's just going to be very interesting to see uh, where he and Tiger choose to do it. What's it like clubbing a guy at a Ryder Cup? Is there just an automatic adrenaline adjustment you have to make right from the get-go? It's a great question because certainly I, I worked almost my entire caddy career for Phil. And he was a massive adrenaline guy. So when he got into these really big spots, whether it's the Masters or the Ryder Cup, he all of a sudden would just start hitting the ball much further than he normally would with his irons. Uh, but but from you know what I've seen now over the years, not everybody's like that. You know, Tiger's certainly not. I was I was blown away one year where I, I read a uh, an interview that Tiger did one year when he hit an incredible shot into 15 at the Masters. Where he basically said, you know. You know, I hit a five iron. It was 222 yards down the hill. And I knew it was a five iron because I had the exact same yardage in a practice round. And I thought to myself, isn't that fascinating? So, you know, it's Tiger basically telling us he hits the ball exactly the same distance on Sunday of the Masters as he did in the Tuesday or Wednesday practice round. And, I, I you know, everybody's different. And uh, again, certainly for Phil, he was as jacked up as uh, as he could ever possibly be. And, you know, there's some great stories about when he played with Keegan at that 2012, you know, Ryder Cup, Keegan was the same way where literally they got on the third or fourth hole one day in a match. And Phil told Keegan in front of the guys we were playing against, Hey man, wait for the green to clear on this par four, because I think you can drive it on the green. 
And it was like, you know, probably a 390 yard par four. And I thought, well, that was, you know, maybe Phil just kind of trying to get in the other guy's heads a little bit. And to Phil's credit, he got up there. He was so jacked up. He drove it in the green side bunker. They got up and down, made birdie and won the hole. So again, you get these guys where you just get this, you know, adrenaline and energy pumping through them. And all of a sudden it's a completely different animal in terms of what you're dealing with as a caddy. Last question. We'll get you out of here. Can we get you to go on record on who you think will win? Well, yes. As an impartial NBC commentator, I would say that I think that the United States is going to win next week at the Ryder Cup. I think they've got their work cut out for them. Certainly one of the toughest things about the position they're in is the fact that certainly they lost the last Ryder Cup. And and everybody's well aware that in the last 20, 30 years, there haven't been as many U.S. wins as a lot of people would have liked to have seen. So that that brings a lot more pressure on them in terms of what they're dealing with. But I think with their length, and I think that with Stricker at the helm, I think he's going to be a terrific captain. I just think that uh, you know things are, are lining up well in terms of of where it's all going to go. Uh, but again, you know, we just saw it in the Solheim Cup. The other team starts making twenty footers. They, they flip the script. You almost, to me, don't want to be a favorite in the Ryder Cup. You you wish that you didn't have to answer those questions in the press conference and things along those lines. But again, you got to get out there and play and. And no matter what happens, I just think it's arguably the most amazing competition in sports. Let's not forget, these guys don't make a dollar for being out there. It's, again, love of country, love of their tour, representing their peers and their families. And I just think it's an absolutely amazing event, and I can't wait for it to start. Gosh, you're making the hair on my arm stand up. Can't wait to get out there, man. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week and look forward to catching up and uh, looking forward to enjoying one of the one of the great weeks in golf. Thanks, Bones. You got it, Sally. Take care. Before we turn it over to Jamie Kennedy, reminder, the world will be watching as the golfers head to Wisconsin this week. And DraftKings, the America's top-rated sportsbook app, is giving you a shot to land on the green. This week, DraftKings is giving new customers $150 in free bets instantly if you bet $1 on any golfer. And if you haven't tried the DraftKings sportsbook, this is the time. Again, all you got to do, place a pre-tournament wager of $1 on any golfer, and DraftKings Sportsbook has given you $150 instantly. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, and the best part is you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code NLU when you sign up to turn $1 into $150 in free bets if you place a pre-tournament wager of $1 on any golfer. That's code NLU to turn $1 into $150 in free bets for a limited time, only to DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Winnings paid out in site credits. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Also, they got a lot of awesome bets like top scorer. You can guess the final score for the upcoming event as well. It's a lot of really good stuff. So without any further delay, we had to bring in our man from across the pond, Mr. Jamie Kennedy. Now it's time to bring in the cooler. I'm, I'm riding too high. I need somebody to bring me down a little bit. No one is better at doing that than our friend from Golf TV, Jamie Kennedy. Listen, the European fans have been begging me to get somebody from Europe's side on. Apparently a five-time Ryder Cupper and a current assistant captain on the European side was not enough. So what are we going to do? Are we just going to spit stats back at each other until this thing actually kicks off? I think so. It's, it's weird to actually hear your voice and not just see a tweet come back at me. So it's uh, <laughs> this is going to be a little awkward to actually face my foe. But um, no, ex- ex- excited to bat for the for the Europeans. So let's do this. All right, well, give me a few reasons why you are feeling good, if you are, uh, about the European side ahead of Whistling Straits. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure that I am. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I'm just sagging when everyone else sigs. But I think one of the things that struck me in the last few weeks is just, 
we've seen this exact script before. We've felt the same things. We've heard the greatest US team ever. We've heard the hype. We've heard the home field advantage stuff like we've heard it all before. And it's just, you know, it's just that mystery of the Ryder Cup and how it comes together. So that's where you draw confidence. I guess you draw confidence on the European side with the, I don't know, the fact that the young guys like Hovland is a rookie. He's a bit like Xander on the US side, just, you know, don't really feel like a rookie. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm ex- I think Podrig and I think the team will be excited that they're big underdogs. I think if it was a little bit closer, it becomes tricky. You know, if some of the US players, had, if it, the picks had gone a different way or the form in the last like three months had gone a bit of a different way. It sort of puts the Europeans in a different position. I think they love being the underdogs. I think they want to roll onto Whistling Straits practice area with smiles on their faces going, you guys have us losing by six. So let's just go. Anything we can do is a bonus. You know, that plays pretty well to this this group of Europeans. So I guess that's what I'm clinging on to. It's not a lot, but... <laughs> no, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, coming in with a little extra pressure if it's supposed to be close versus feeling like you have nothing to lose, I think can make a big difference. So on the flip side of the coin, give me a few reasons why maybe you, you may have covered some of them there, but a few reasons why maybe you're not feeling so good about the European side. Yeah, I think I've had a discussion with a lot of people recently. I mean, to, it obviously just comes up in Ryder Cup, the people that come out of the blue to talk to you about Ryder Cup um, compared to just like, I don't know, like the Omega European Masters is a bit different. So I would say that the bottom half of the European team I, I think is maybe actually stronger than it has been in, in recent years. Um, I know Wiesberger, you know, sneaking his way in probably worries a few people and Rose not making it in, but the likes of like Lowry and Garcia and Fitzpatrick and people like that being the lower half of our team, I don't think is necessarily too bad of a thing. I, th- I, I I'm worried about the top half of the team. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's where you know, I was looking at it. We have one player inside the top 12 and the U.S. have nine in the world rankings. So I, you can say all you want about, you know, rankings and then obviously like the two year lag. But that's not normal for this event. Like we, we've usually had, you know, a lot more guys coming in on major success or on, on having a bit better form than that. So that would be the worries. You know, when it comes to foursomes, you, you can have one guy playing really well that wins a match for you and it just feels like the US have more of those sort of guys ready to go. I think I think I listened to you and uh, Kyle talking about it last week, but you know, there's a few situations where the Europeans have to do a couple of things well to compete. Like Ram has to play a lot of matches, has to play well. His stomach bug this week is scaring me a little bit, but Rory has to come out and just find something, you know, we can't I think I think the US team could dodge a couple of bullets, you know, if Bryson had a bad week, if speed didn't play well like i think other guys can pick up the slack whereas we kind of need those top guns to to come out firing yeah no i i will give you ample opportunity to put <laughs> all the holes you want in the u.s side because it is okay, definitely yeah, there's some holes in the death star there listen this is not <laughs> it is i i think I, either i misrepresented or mispresented i was very confident the u.s was going to win in 2018 i did not think it was impossible for them to lose a lot of people uh, you know, thought that that was the, the case that I made, and I definitely, definitely do not think it is impossible for the U.S. to lose this Ryder Cup. I think it will, it will unleash a year's worth of takes that the likes of which we've <laughs> never seen before in the golf world if they do, because I think it lines up extremely, extremely well for them. And that's interesting that you say you're, you're more worried about the top, because if I'm uh, on American side – I'm worried about Rom. I'm worried about Casey. I'm worried about Hovland. Rory always going to turn it on. 
Sergio, I think this is a great, great course fit for Sergio. So there's five dudes that I think the Europeans are going to ride really hard. I don't know if Sergio and I don't know if Casey can go all four team matches. I don't know if they would plan on that. I wouldn't think so, but I'm guessing Rom, Hovland, and Rory are going to play all of the sessions on the team side. And I, I think the, the Europeans have a little bit of a depth issue at the bottom when it comes to you know how Fleetwood has played this year, Westwood, Wiesberger, Poulter with how he's hit the ball this year, and this course fit. And I think you can mask that a little bit over the first two days, but it's singles that I think, you know, even if the U.S. is down 9-7 or so, or even maybe slightly more than that, I, I cannot foresee a situation where they're not favored in eight or nine of the singles matches. Of course, being favored does not mean you're going to win, but I just think that, it, I just don't know how long Europe can... I don't want to say hide their depth issue that they have because we know freaky things can happen in this event. But if I was a European fan, the, the depth at the bottom would worry me more than... And I, I kind of get what you're saying, though, because you're saying it's going to put a lot of stress on the top guys from the get-go. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, to your point about the singles, it's totally right. I mean, I think this has changed in recent years. I know there's a lot more probably stats that say you got you have to sort of play the guys so they have a bit of experience before Sunday. But you look back to, I think, 99... I think there's three Europeans that just, they didn't even play a match until Sunday. And so, you know, we went all in, let's try and get up, try and get a lead. And we got one and we're, you know, uh, four points up going into, into Sunday. And then we know what happened on Sunday. So those guys that, you know, I think it was like Andrew Coulthard and guys like that, that didn't play just, I mean, just like railroaded, like they don't have any experience of the first tee. They don't have any experience of the rhythm of the thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if, Padraig was looking to try and hide guys a little bit. Maybe they only play one match. There's like three or four guys that only play one match, but I just don't see any guys sitting until Sunday. And that, I guess, is a little bit of a concern considering some of the some of the names. But, you know, like you say, this is all chat and all. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be so... Like, I think the three-year hiatus, I think the course, I think the way that the two teams have sort of matured in age, I think it's like set up to just be unbelievable. I can't wait. I hope so. Yeah, to your point, in 99, Coltart, Vandeveld, and Sandalin were the three that didn't play any matches. Then they drew Phil, Davis Love, and Tiger. Uh, and, <laughs> I and mean, no one made it to the 17th hole. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, those guys have to just look back on that week and go, like, what was I doing? Like, so. It kind of threw me for So I'm, I'm trying to take a, do a little analysis on, like, U.S. qualifier, and I'm doing Europe, too. Like the qualifiers and captains' picks with their records over the last 20 years or so. And I pulled up the records from uh, from 99 and from 2012. And I looked at the U.S. side, and the overall record between all the players added up was a winning record in 2012. And I'm like, oh, my God, they got the scoring wrong. Like the U.S. should have won the Ryder Cup. <laughs> and it dawned on me that it's that, you know when you're playing the team game, the wins count double and the losses count double. And... You know, like the actual playing records of those teams, you know, Europe in 99 and U.S. in 2012 was actually above 500 individually. That's bizarre, isn't it? I know. It was a weird <laughs> little twist as to speak to how crazy those final days are. But also, like, how many freaking points are available that final day? I think that 12 of 28 points is almost 50% worth of the play is all settled on that final day. That's why I think we've seen some crazy comebacks. France, look, there was a 15-minute period where if the matches had finished the way they were standing, not late, not early in the game, that the U.S. would have won. And it, it, it started raining down. It was downpouring of birdies on the European side after that. But, but even, on, even on Friday, I think, in, in Paris, it would, you know, at one stage it was projected to be like 5-1 to the U.S. or something. Yeah. You know, the, and, and people overreact to that so much. And I'm sure in a way, 
the teams do as well. You know, I'd, I'd heard stories that the, I think Fleetwood and Molinari were playing on the back nine there in France on Friday on about, I think they were down. I think they were like one down with four to play. And the weird thing about the Ryder Cup, because it's such a condensed event, is the team, the captains then have to put their pairings in before the end. So they're watching shots and making calls based on shots. And obviously they have their plan, but if that team's losing, you're not going to throw them back out. And there was chat between the captains of splitting that team. And I think the, you know, the stats group came in. I think Robert Carlson, surprisingly enough, played quite a big, a big role in coming over and going, just settle down guys like <laughs> this is the plan it's a plan for a reason so they kind of stuck with the process they ended up coming back to win that match and obviously went 4-0 and in their games so it's amazing the the ups and downs of those first two days and how the third day just feels like a day but you know more than half the points are available just on that one day so it's uh that <laughs> that's what makes the friday and uh, i think on the saturday so exciting is that one point just feels like 10 early on a Friday. It's just like, if they're two up after four, you're like, this thing's over. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just flying in on Twitter. Everyone's just so excited. And then all of a sudden on Sunday, you're like, oh shit, we're down in four of the five matches or whatever it is. So. Yeah, it's funny. I was watching some old highlights from 18 and 16. And man, like the U.S. played at times, played way better in France than I remember it, right? I mean, they made some putts. They chipped in. And that actually concerned me a little bit. I was like, oh, my God, we still lost that badly after, you know, kind of holding it from everywhere. I mean, it was a highlight. It was a highlight package, of course. But it just like it it, it really is a small sample size that you're dealing with, you know, an 18 hole match. And no matter who plays in this event, the 24th ranked player in this event can beat the first ranked player. We see it all the time in stroke play. Nobody notices. But yeah, the, the, you know, the 20, 24th best player in a field can beat number one very easily in stroke play on Friday and you wouldn't notice it. But what can you? All right. So I get a lot of this from people. Blah, blah, blah. You're too into the stats. You don't understand analytics. Like every year we look at analytics and every year Europe beats our butt. Tell us why that's not necessarily the case. Can you tell us, with, I'm sure you don't want to give too much away, but I'm sure you know a little bit about how analytics are done on the European side and, and how much of a role that plays. That story you just told about Fleetwood and Molinari kind of is exactly what I'm talking about. I think there's, without doubt, the Europeans embrace the stats earlier than the US and that probably came to fruition. And it's probably a personality-led thing. I don't know if it's a PGA of America thing or, you know, just the way the players are when they played. You know, Stricker even said he's fighting it a little bit because he's not used to it. So he kind of has to weigh up both things. And I laugh because I sometimes when captains are debating you know the gut feel of Ryder Cup versus statistics I think of that like Moneyball scene when uh, when Brad Pitt's sitting around with all the old guys saying you know oh he's got a hot, he's got a hot girlfriend that means he's you know whatever it is and uh, you know and, and Brad Pitt's just shaking his head and he's you know Brad Pitt is Thomas Bjorn in that situation saying I don't care like I know the stats say that Molinari and Fleetwood suit together so the one thing I would say to people is the statistics that you're looking at to make these judgments that even the statistics that me and you go back and forth on they're not the statistics that the, these guys are looking at they're so much deeper they're so much more in the weeds i remember hearing it was robert carlson luke donald were the two guys i used to chat to in the lead up to 18 about it and they were they had all sorts of models built on like pressure play and pressure putting so when a player got within one or two shots of the lead that activated them in that statistic and then they tracked how they did from then on in terms of putting in terms of play so they could see how they handled pressure and then there's all kinds of things about 
you know, which iron play suits back right pins versus front left pins versus greens that shape a certain way, greens that are deep, greens that are narrow, wind directions, who can hold the ball up against the wind, right? So it's so deep and then it's distilled down to however the captain wants it, but it's, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, and again, this is just like one contributing factor to, to Stricker's point. I mean, at the end of the day, he sort of makes the call and, and that's what can happen is these calls can can change and that's the one thing i'd say is underrated is you hear a lot of people saying is is stricker the right guy is is harrington the right guy to sort of adjust the plan i would say to people adjusting the plan in a three-day event like the Ryder cup is a huge huge call to sit there on your buggy on the 15th hole on friday you know friday afternoon and change what you've been planning for weeks is quite a tough decision to get to so if there is anything like that that's that's borderline panic button so i don't anticipate that being like a big thing i think unless guys aren't feeling right or you know something crazy happens i think they'll have a a pretty strict plan that they'll stick to that's really interesting about the 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 here i like i did a cursory glance through whistling and tried to come up with how i think that you would pair somebody with foursomes and (laughs) i mean i i knew that it was much much deeper than what i'm able to you know drum up online and everything but that's interesting about wind and pins. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge part to, you know, where does it, where would this guy hit it? Whereas, you know, the, you know, like Zalatoris and decades start approach of looking at, you know, the windows that these guys hit it and, you know, how offline could they go on this hole? So they're, you know, more likely to hit it to the left side of the fairway or whatever it is. But, and again, it's just trying to, isn't that, I don't think the purpose of this is to like ensure a point. It's just to ensure like, you know, to the same point as strokes gained, it's to ensure like half a shot that might make the difference in a match. So if it came down to it, this would give you the tiniest little edge in a match that went down 18. But And maybe over the course of, you know, a Ryder Cup or even over the course of like two or three Ryder Cups, if this is the approach that you're taking, maybe it wins you a few points and, and can make a difference. But And that's where, you know, I think there's, there is something to this intangible part. And I do want to talk to you about that. You know, this kind of immeasurable effect of team play and all that. And hey, they they throw, you know, throw analytics or throw numbers out the window when it comes to the Ryder Cup. And I want to just be like, you know what? Like the numbers have been pretty darn good in, in a lot of the past several Ryder Cups, right? The 2012 Ryder Cup was a very even matchup. And here we ended up with like, you know, obviously one of the closest and wildest Ryder Cups ever. 2014, that European team was just flat out better and favored, and they beat them, and they ran their playbook, and it worked. 2016, that U.S. team was just flat out better, ran their course playbook, shifted the odds in their favor to help, you know, fit some of their strengths. 2018, the U.S. came in with a fantastic team, but gosh, were they mitigated on that golf course. I mean, Phil... Bryson, you know, Tiger's never been an accurate driver of the ball on a golf course that just driving accuracy was what the Europeans keyed on very early and said, this is what our advantage is going to be. And here's how we're going to play into it. And like I did, I was not knowledgeable to it before they teed it up. But once they teed it up, Europe was the favored team. Like Europe had a better chance of winning that because of how they had formulated everything. And I just think that yeah, on top, you know, aside from this intangible thing that I think we do need to get into, there is a very, very, very good reason why the numbers play such a strong role in all of this. Oh, be, like, beyond belief. And so far beyond what I think the average fan would appreciate. And, you know, going back to France, I remember, 
I think it was public information. I think someday, I don't even know if it was us at the, I think it might be us at the European Tour or, or someone had posted out the number of rounds played by both teams at Le Golf National combined. I think JT had come over to play France and did pretty well. I think he finished like top five, but his four rounds were the only four rounds that the team had played other than when they went over, I think, ahead of the Open for a practice round. But, you know, competitive rounds, it had made such a difference. And it's not necessarily seeing the course and understanding clubs on a par three or something it's just having that expectation of you know it doesn't take you by shock under the gun how tight the, the third tee shot is or something like that you know it just gives you that sense of confidence going in and I think that's what a lot of these numbers do a lot of the fluff that you hear about what the captains are doing to prepare it's just to make it so that these guys can just go out and play <laughs> and it, it sounds so, so like cliche to say it but you want to just do every little detail so the guys can go out and just not question it. I have a feeling that some of the U.S. team, you know, when they got paired up or however it worked in France, which, and maybe it's the, the height of the rough, even though they had the couple of days to practice there. But when that rough at the Golf National gets a little wet as well, it's brutal. So I think, you know, it just took them a little bit by surprise. And then maybe they're trying to change stuff during rounds. And that's just, you know, a recipe for disaster. So it'll be interesting to see it whistling, though, because, you know, I mean, clearly we know the sort of way that the US team will set up that course. And it means that the, the, you know, the Europeans should be able to get the ball and play. They're obviously not gonna potentially hit it as far as, as the US team, but I think it sets up to maybe be a better spectacle because of the strengths of the US team. You know, we're not gonna see as many, you know, hacks out and, you know, he has to hold us from 50 yards short of the green to try and half the hole. It's gonna be more like who can stuff it close from a, with a five iron. And, and I think that's the exciting stuff that people want to see. I think that reminds me a little bit more of Hazeltine and sort of long iron approaches and Thomas Peters and Rory and those guys just going and, you know, flagging shots that just get the crowd going. So that's my hope. Yep. No, I, 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 <laughs> I struggle with this, right? Because I'm very anti-bomb and gouge. I don't love like the trend of the PGA Tour and being like just send driver. Yet I, of course, root for the American team, so I want them to set this up <laughs> in that way. But I really, and I've said this, I said this before 16. Definitely said it before 18. I'll continue to say it. Like we need an independent body setting up these golf courses. I don't think it need like if if the U.S. goes on to win this by a lot then we are, that's four straight Ryder Cups that have not even been close, really. And that, I think things are just going to continue to trend towards the most, like on the extreme ends of manipulating courses and setups that play too much to the home team's advantage, right? And I just don't think, I don't think that serves really anyone. I think a good, close, exciting match is what this event should and can be, can be about, right? And I think the U.S. should have competed better than they did in 2018 and prepared better, and I think they could have. I don't think the Europe Europeans on this year, like you can't just like add distance overnight, right? They're not gonna. I, I it's not to say they can't win, of course, but I think it is gonna the the whistling is gonna play a big difference, and it's not. I hear some people saying like, "Hey, it's not gonna be, you know, just who who hits it the furthest," and I was like, "That's not really the point. It's who can get it closest to the hole," and if. If U.S. can bomb it and, you know, just on average, a shot from 140 is going to go closer than a shot from 160. And if they can avoid the Europeans making those 25-footers that they always seem to make, like, that's that's the playbook, right? And it's going to take a ton of made 25-footers to disrupt, you know, that the boat on that one. And so, yeah, are, are, you, are you concerned from the European side on whistling straights, how the distance profile sets up, the accuracy profile sets up, and mm. how the teams line up? 
Somewhat, yeah. I, I think the Europeans could use some weather. I think they could use some wind and just and see how it plays. But just a, a couple of points on, on the, what you mentioned, a couple of things that I've been thinking about in the last, I don't know, two or three weeks in the run up to this. I mean, your point about, I think I heard you talking last week that, you know, if you take Poulter's putts out of play, 10 of the last 11 Ryder Cups have been won by the home team which is kind of staggering to think about. And that, that plays to the idea that, you know, maybe the course setups is, is sort of being pushed a little bit too far. But I, I kind of wonder if you would be interested in hearing this argument that I think the models of the teams and the styles of the teams is maybe blending closer together than it's ever been. I think if you look back at the like 80s and 90s and specifically 90s and maybe the 2000s and you look at the kind of European players that were at the top of the world rankings and how you'd set up a course for the likes of Faldo, Langer, Luke Donald, Monty, you know, that kind of formula of guy was obviously a straight hitting, very solid, you know, that's how you'd set up a Le Golf National. But I think now that you look at the Europeans that are coming through and it's, you know, it's Rory, it's Ram, it's Hovland, who knows who the next generation of guys will be. But I kind of feel like, and again, this is maybe to the point of, you know, the distance in the game, but I think the modern player is just going to become a little bit more uniform across both teams. And I think potentially there's going to be less, you know, oh, we're going to set it up this way to just eliminate the US team, or we're going to set it up this way to eliminate the Europeans. Um, so I think that could be an interesting trend to sort of see. And, you know, by the time... Italy comes around and by the time it comes back again, like how, how would you set up this? Cause I don't know that they're going to give up that, that home setup. I think they quite like their, there being a little bit of a, an advantage to the home team, but the, and then on your other point about, you know, the Europeans seeming to make those 25 foot putts. I think that's why I mentioned to, I think one of the tweets that we we're going back and forth with was talking about that a little bit that I think the underrated narrative here is how strong the US team is at putting and of course putting in the US. <laughs> I mean I, I think I looked into it and there's I think there's three I think it's Ram, Fitzpatrick and Poulter are the positive, like way above average putters on the European team. So I kind of feel like you need to slot them into foursome foursome's teams if you can, just to have the really solid putter. But then on the US side there's six. There's six guys that are like above point three or point four and strokes game putting and that I mean that's double the amount of guns that you've got when it comes to holding putts on the green so I wish it was the other way around and I wish the Europeans could be hitting the longer shots in but having the advantage when they putt I just I fear that guys I I'm scared of the guys like Cantley and Xander and Daniel Berger and these guys that are just gonna feel like rolling those putts that normally are the Europeans, but maybe I'm just I think I think I've I've got a word from Harrington that I'm I'm just playing to this undercard under underdog story, so I'm just trying to build up to that a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's your first point on uh, like Rom, Casey, Hovland, Rory. I view them as PGA Tour players, right? They they play primarily on the PGA Tour, and their course. Their playing style fits very strongly with the PGA Tour, and should fit very strongly with Whistling Straits. Again, if I'm if I'm on your side, I don't worry about how those guys fit the golf course. I think it's once you get past that Sergio in that in that category as well, and he's not top top in his game that he's been over his career, but he's still got it. I mean, he's third, in, I think he's the third best strokes gain off the tee of anyone in this field this week, but. Once you, once you get past that is when it just turns into like a bunch of guys that would, gosh, they would scare me so much. If we were going back to France, the Poulter, the Fleetwoods, the Westwood, the Wiesberger, everyone, 
everyone would terrify me. And they just, this can be famous last words, they just don't scare me nearly as much at whistling. And I think if you look at that U.S. team, and I, I can't believe they did it. You know, they, they picked the six exact guys that I would want to pick when it came time for this golf course being a bomber's delight and just being dudes that get the ball in the hole. People, you know, I feel like there's starting to be a little bit of anti-strokes gain momentum and maybe it's just because I overuse it, but like that's the measurement of how you get the ball in the hole. Like that's all it is. It's, it's you know, some people don't think it's maybe a bit too fancy or a bit too whatever, but like that's what it is. It's your ability to get the ball in the hole and uh, they went for this strokes gain plus course fit model and kind of figure out the chemistry as we go but I kind of have so far been liking what I've heard out of the Stricker camp. Now, this is your chance to go ahead and let's just poke some holes. Like you can, I can do it for you if you want, but poke some holes in what you're seeing on the, on maybe the team chemistry side on the U S side. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I was, I was totally there for Kyle's point of this is the post tiger Phil era and that's good for the U S team. And I get that, but I still want, and I don't see guys like JT and Spieth as being, the vocal leaders in the team room. And I think that stuff's maybe a little bit overrated overall, but at the same time, it still feels like 12 individuals coming together more so than, you know, when you see the Europeans in the team room or in behind, they're all just like really comfortable. And and shockingly, because they come from such diverse backgrounds most of the time. And like you say, some of them play on European tours on the split time. Some of them are US based, but so I don't know. I'd be interested to see how that plays out. And I sometimes feel like the, the Americans maybe try and force all these narratives a bit more of, you know, here's a video of us all laughing together. And here's, you know, I, I kind of think, yeah, I was thinking this morning when I was walking around, I was uh, saying, I'm sure that the European camp has the a version of the task force or whatever it's called they just don't call it the task force and they don't bring it up in press conferences and they don't make a big deal out of it but they have a process by which they do things so it's just it's just a slightly different demeanor thing but overall yeah i just think the u.s team it's more just about how they combine in their team games i think like you say i think the europeans are going to need to get up three four five points going into into singles because head to head it just turns into just a complete competition of ball striking and, and the US team is going to f- be the favorites there. So that's where I, ca- I kind of would hope that we gel as Europeans and, and maybe there's a bit of weather, but um, yeah, I don't, there's not actually a ton of holes to sort of poke into the European, I mean, to the US team. I think there's a couple of worries, obviously, you know, uh, Brooks health and DJ's games, maybe not being quite as much there. And, you know, is there guys that get along or don't get along, but ultimately this i mean again playing to the to the favorite is theirs to lose definitely but um man you're too nice i'll do it all i'll do it all morikawa's back is a question mark hasn't played oh, yeah. good yeah dustin has seems just very can take it or leave it when it comes to this event like he was one in four in france as the number one player in the world bryson has self-proclaimed he has wrecked his hands uh <laughs> trying to get ready for the long drive contest he's doing on the monday after this thing and then we have kepka who very much views the, like the way his comments in the golf digest interview were just like this is exactly what we're talking about like th- this whole i thing about how this event affects me and my routine is just what you will not hear on the european side because they get genuinely excited to go play together as a team and i i'm I'm, I'm there. I'm all the way there. Maybe if I downplayed this at all in the past, like I'm all the way there on that mattering because for so many years, we've had to answer the question, why does the U.S. have a better 
team, like a better team on paper, and not play well in the Ryder Cup. And I think there is a difference in like having a team support surround system and a and a, a atmosphere that promotes fun versus an atmosphere that promotes pressure. And like that is like defining the difference between the two teams over the last two decades, right? The U.S. comes in and tries to perform so well individually without like having this. I talked about this with Bones when they first have this po- this podcast. I don't see the U- the U.S.'s top player jumping up and down on the green after winning it, like I saw John Rahm after winning, you know, in 2018, and Fleetwood losing his match in singles and going right out and celebrating, popping corks and all that. So it just it's it just not the same at like. Uh, dedication and devotion to the team, which uh, when under the gun can make a difference in very close matches. Am I on to something? Yeah, I think so. One of the things I was thinking about ahead of this was uh, even just the first tee. I think if you, if you look closely at the demeanor of the guys when they walk onto the first tee of a Ryder Cup, I think the first tee of the Ryder Cup, I mean, we obviously know it's like its own event compared to the, to the rest of the Ryder Cup, but it's such a big event, the first tee and the first tee shot of the first day, that it's impossible to ignore. You know, if, if, if you watch guys walking onto the first tee of the Tour Championship or Augusta, they can keep it under wraps and keep it under lid and do their usual tip their cap and go and hit their shot. You can't do that at the Ryder Cup. It's, it's so loud. It's so in your face. It slaps you across the face. You can't ignore it. And if you watch the Europeans, they tend to embrace it. They tend to smile, wave, cheer on the crowd. You know, even if it's the U.S. crowd, they, they might acknowledge it. And I think the Americans work so hard to try and not do that that it's actually counterproductive to them. And even and it's the same thing, like you said, with holding a putt and having a bit of a release. When it's the Americans, I mean, JT has it a little bit and Spieth had it, but most of the time it just, it doesn't feel like what's natural to them. Whereas the Europeans just seem to be playing more naturally. And it's... Yes. Um, you can't fake this kind of thing, right? I'm not asking no. the Americans to fake it. Like I, it's just something that is inherent, I truly think. But I also think has the potentially to start to turn with a different generation to Kyle's point of like, you know, kind of being the only vets in this thing are Kepka, DJ, and now Spieth is, I guess, technically a vet. But, like, you know, Finau's only played in one. You know, Kepka's only played in two. And I'm just kind of doing this off the top of my head. But, like, six rookies plus JT and Spieth being some of the younger guys, it feels like it's the best chance for the European, the U.S. to kind of turn over this this atmosphere in some way. So Yeah, and, and build, like, uh, build a future. I mean, you, I've heard you guys talk for a long time about, like, pick for the future and build it. I mean, it's come, it's just happened to be that way that these guys are playing at the right time. But, you know, I was going to, I'm, I'm surprised the U.S. has, the U.S. team as it sets up has a winning record at the Ryder Cup. They've, I think they have 24 wins, 22 losses. So I know that's tight and that's maybe not as dominant as they are in the game, but they have a winning record. They don't have like a ton of scar tissue, so why not? The one thing I'm going to ask that you look out for that I know you'll be excited for and I know fans will be excited for is the 13th man on the European side is going to be in the media center on the days before the Ryder Cup because you think of the storylines that these the US team have coming into this and the questions that they're going to be asked and how they handle it. If I'm on if I'm in the US like backroom staff, I'm working overtime on how we approach that because Bryson's going to get asked about his long drive stuff. Brooks is going to get asked about his comments. Morikawa is going to get asked about injuries. DJ is going to ask if he cares, you know, like all these guys are going to get asked the thing. And does that get to them a tiny bit? Are they going to try and like react to that when they play? I don't know. Whereas the Europeans, you know, they're just coming in sort of ho-hum a little bit under form. They'll get asked about being underdogs and they'll like that. So I just, I, I kind of am excited to see what happens like Wednesday, Thursday in, in the media center. 
It might be me asking the questions. I play. If, yeah. if Bryson has a bad Ryder Cup, I very much plan to be in there asking him about <laughs> his uh, his training routine. Well, oh, he won't be there. He, he's got to get to his long drive, doesn't he? Soon that's as, right. As soon as the final post dropped, he's off. So, <laughs> talk to me about pairings. I, I want to. Where do you see the Europeans doing with their big guns? We talked a lot about them a lot, but you know, looking back on it, I didn't remember Rory playing with Andy Sullivan in sixteen, and then of course he 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 paired with uh, Thomas Peters the rest of the way. But Rory also played with. Jorbjorn Olison in 2018. So I, we've kind of seen their stars mix it up with, you know, some guys that I would consider on the back half of their team. But we've seen, you know, the Rose and Stenson's pair up and Sergio and Rory and all that stuff. What, what do you think is going to happen? Because I, I really think it's interesting because they could go like real heavy with like Rom, Rory and try to guarantee some points. They split them up. I, I really have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I think. I think to the Rory point, I think Rory's quite an easy guy to play with. I think he's quite a laid-back kind of character and gets on well with people, so he's maybe been suited to sort of taking those guys under the wing. I still remember him and Andy Sullivan charging, like, in the first 12 or 13 holes. Sullivan was holding putts, Rory was holding putts. They were laughing, but they lost, and then that Sullivan didn't play again until Sunday, and, you know, he's the kind of guy that's just not made it back onto the team. But when it comes to pairings, like, the, the sort of educated answer is, you kind of are pairing up like I think putters with drivers and stuff. So you have to have a putter in every foursomes team for the Europeans just because there's not as many. But from history, like like you say, we don't have Rose, we don't have Stenson, we don't have those guys. The only pairing that I can see being a rollover is uh, is Casey and Hatton. Those two paired pretty well together. Their games are pretty similar. Their demeanors are kind of similar. So, uh, well, maybe not Hatton's as much as uh, with Paul, but I can I can see those two going together. I, funnily enough, I've had this feeling that uh, Rory might go out with Poulter uh, on Friday. Um, I know they did that before. It didn't work. I know they played in Paris. They got a little bit too hyped and they ended up getting beat. But I just think. I think Rory and Poulter being that sort of like statement pairing on Friday could be maybe a bit of a catalyst for the week and getting, I mean, Poulter's putting numbers are pretty incredible this year, even though his game's maybe not that suited to whistling, but, and then pairing with Rory, that could be interesting. I think I'd look for potentially Ram and Sergio playing together, but I'm not sure that that relationship is as tight as everyone makes out. I think they're, they're friends, but you know, who knows if they're, how close they are, but I think it's quite, quite tricky honestly I'd, I'd think i'd rather be picking pairings on the u.s side in terms of pairing up games than uh pairing up the the european side so my my morning for, i'll give you my foursomes i wrote these down i'll give you my foursomes for friday morning where uh rory uh, rory and poulter ram and sergio hovland and hatton and fleetwood and casey even though i just told you that hatton and casey are gonna pair <laughs> together well <laughs> I, uh, I so yeah i think i think that would be pretty strong i think like we said earlier, Padre going to have to ride, <laughs> you know, like we said before, Rory, Ram, Hovland. So the, my, funnily enough, when you said that earlier, my way of picking them earlier, I wrote down those three names and I paired someone with them and then I made up another team and that was it. Yep. So that's kind of the way I think it's going to have to go. Yep. No. And uh, here's the thing. I'm, I'm going to sit here and say, I think the U S team lines up actually great for foursomes for once. And then they're going to put balls in the air Friday morning and I'm going to feel horrible about, about it. But I think it's JT and Spieth. I think it's Cantlay and Xander. I truly don't know where it's after that, but I could see a combo of DJ and Morikawa. I could see a combination of Finau and Morikawa. I would be surprised if they ran, uh, or I could see Berger going out there. I'd be surprised if they ran English or Scheffler out there in the morning. But uh, the, the the teams three and four, I, I really don't know what that fourth one might be. But then I think it's Bryson and Scheffler in the afternoon for four ball. I think English is going to go. I'd have to check my 
my sources on what the pods are and all that stuff. But the Europeans can roll out a good team in morning foursomes. You know, that, they can really make that the A. And then you get into afternoon four ball. And if we're running out, uh, candidly, if we're running out Wiesberger and Westwood and four ball and some of the, you know, some of the names, unless they're going to sit them for an entire day, I think the U.S. is going to have a great opportunity in the afternoon to, to build a lead. Could be famous last words, but foursomes could go either way is what I'm saying. I'm not going to panic if they're down 3-1, but afternoon four ball is when I expect the U.S. depth to start to show off a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think to, to your point, I think the four ball selection is going to be like absolutely fascinating because uh, we've talked about the fact that Europeans maybe have to build a lead. So do you do that on day one or do you view it as the first two days overall? So um, I, I have Wiesberg going in the afternoon on Friday with Fleetwood, but that's like pie in the sky stuff. But I, I kind of think it's important just to give them a, or a couple of guys a little bit of a glimpse. I mean, Hovland's going to play, so you don't have to worry about him. And I think, uh, you know, Wiesberger's and uh, I guess Lowry's a rookie as well. So maybe you pair him up with Rory in the, in the four balls in the afternoon to give him like a comfortable match to play. But um i think those afternoon four ball picks are going to be pretty cool to see and also obviously like we talked about before how they react to the friday morning so hmm. yeah no, i forgot about kepka as well but i could see Finau kepka going in the afternoon four ball i think english and burger may end up pairing together it it's i don't know i, I i'm too deep I've, lo- I've i've lost myself i'm too i need to pull up <laughs> i need this wires week to get here. trying to figure out hey, yeah i need this week to get here are you going to go on record with an official pick of the overall match sure yeah. Uh, I mean, if I was like, if I was gambling or I was like really gun to the head, I would say it's. Uh, I would say the U.S. by three. Oh, that's no fun. But I, uh, I, I genuinely do think that this is going to be one of those years. It's just going to play play differently with the uh, tiny bit of wind and something. I actually was looking at the the odds of the tie. Yeah, that's very much like sitting on the fence, but nobody ever talks about it, and it, it would be a very odd thing to have. But I, I mean, I would love it. Can you imagine the finish, uh, uh, like whistling straights with like three matches left on the course? They're coming 16, 17, 18. It would just be absolutely bonkers. So I, I might pull for that, but um, yeah, have have a little bit of um, confidence in my heart that maybe the Euros are going to surprise a few people. Well, I cannot wait. Uh, I was hoping you'd pick the Euros so we could have a we could have a wager, but I oh, understand. we can do. I mean, we can do that regardless. <laughs> I've I've got I've got my hat ready. I've I've done this many times before, and it's worked out. So let's do it. <laughs> well, thank you for the tremendous perspective, Jamie. I look forward to next week, and uh, hopefully, when the world gets back to normal, we'll catch up again in person. Oh, good, go Europe! Ah, damn it! Cheers, bud. <laughs> Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yeah. that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything.